Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of The Van Maren Show at LifeSite News. I've been working really hard on this project for quite some time now, and I'm really excited to finally launch a podcast that I think is really needed in today's alternative media landscape. Now, those of you who read my columns at LifeSite News or have read uh, one of my books or have read my blog, The Bridgehead, will know that what I try to do every single week is get a handle on what is going on in our culture. The social changes of the last half century, since the sexual revolution, essentially, right around the world, but especially here in the West, have been absolutely staggering to consider. There are things happening today that we couldn't have imagined even a decade ago, much less 50 years ago, and the world that we live in has been transformed by the sexual revolution. And because of this, it's often very hard for those of us with Christian views, those of us who identify as socially conservative or pro-life, to find sources of information, to find sources of news to find storytellers that accurately reflect our worldview and that let us know what's actually going on. Because what we've seen over the last couple of decades is the secular progressives completely hijack the academia, as we've heard from Dr. Jordan Peterson over the last couple of years, the entertainment industry, which now essentially peddles stories that are overtly hostile to the Christian worldview and often specialize in making fun of the traditional values that Christians have held for 2,000 years, and yes, even politicians. Even politicians now are getting on board with new gender ideologies, for example, that most of them probably hadn't even heard of 10 years ago. And one of the things that I have found so frustrating is that as somebody who has worked in the pro-life movement now for 10 years, I also get to meet amazing, incredible men and women on the front lines of the culture wars every day. Men and women who have been working in the pro-life and pro-family movement for years, making incredible sacrifices and doing incredible things. And yet the vast majority of people, even those who are Christian, even those who are pro-life, even those who are socially conservative, have never heard of these people and have never heard these stories. And it's discouraging enough to consider what's taken place in our culture over the last 50 years, but it's even more discouraging when you never hear about the men and women who are on the front lines pushing back in defense of the most vulnerable members of our society, pushing back in defense of the sanctity of the family and the sanctity of marriage. Because if you read today's media, you basically assume that everybody Everybody is on board with the sexual revolution. Everybody is on board with the agenda being pushed by the LGBT activists. Everybody is on board with abortion on demand. And yet that is simply not the case. Over the past 10 years, I've had the incredible opportunity to work on Canadian streets with amazing pro-life activists, to work on American campuses with pro-life groups there, to go to Marches for Life in the Netherlands and the United States and here in Ottawa, Canada, to speak in the Netherlands in different schools on abortion and how we can fight abortion, to go door-to-door in Ireland prior to the abortion referendum uh, last year on May 25th, and to meet the people in each country who are pushing back against the culture of death, who are looking this madness in the face and saying, absolutely not. 
And there's a very good chance that many of the stories that I want to explore on this podcast are stories that you've never heard of before. I want to tell you the story of one of the most controversial academics in Europe who was for years an atheist and then became a Christian and wrote a book exposing the LGBT agenda and as a result was condemned as a Nazi by the German establishment. I want to tell you the stories of scholars who have gotten kicked out of their jobs and pushed out of their offices for taking positions that all of Western civilization held only what seems like just yesterday. I want to tell you the stories of abortion activists who became pro-lifers and now have bone-chilling stories to tell about the things they saw inside the abortion clinics, things that will never make the newspaper because our media wants to cover these things up. I want to tell you the stories of the people who were in front of abortion clinics every single day, crying out on behalf of those pre-born children who are threatened with imminent death, offering help, and who so often get to see their actions rewarded with little miracles, little miracles that become babies that end up safely in their mother's arms instead of dumpsters behind these same clinics. I want to tell you stories of the activists in Ireland who fought for 35 years to keep abortion out of their country and saved hundreds of thousands of lives. I want to tell you the stories of the activists in Argentina who put more than 3 million people on the streets and successfully pushed back against the attempts of abortion activists to legalize abortion in that country. I want to tell you about the plans in Guatemala to legalize abortion that were shut down when tens of thousands of pro-life people marched on the Capitol and demanded that the government protect preborn life. There are so many incredible stories that we can go through. There are so many incredible stories to tell from the pro-life and the pro-family movement. These are the men and women that I have been so privileged to meet. I have been so privileged to work with. And in some instances, I've been privileged to share their stories with others. And that's what we want to do on this podcast, because in the new media and the alternative media universe, there are increasingly a lot more options for conservative-minded people. A lot of you probably listen to uh, conservative commentator Ben Shapiro, who's a very vocally pro-life person. A lot of you probably listen to Jordan B. Peterson and other commentators just like him. But there is not yet any podcast that's dedicated to telling the stories of the men and women around the world who are pushing back against the culture of death in defense of preborn babies and in defense of the sanctity of the family. And that's what we'd like to do every week on this podcast. And we really hope that you'll take the time to join us because I think that the interviews and the discussions and the conversations that we hope to have uh, are not only educational, but they're extremely encouraging because it's, it's so easy in today's atmosphere when the entertainment industry and the media and academia and most politicians are all making it sound like we're, quote, on the wrong side of history, that it's just really encouraging to realize that in every single country, there are people who have not yet bowed to these ideologies. There are people who are saying every single innocent preborn life is worth fighting for. And there are people who are willing to do amazing things and make tremendous sacrifices for those people. For the first episode of this podcast, I really wanted to have a discussion with Anthony Eslin. And those of you who haven't heard of him need to be familiar with him because he is one of the greatest living writers on the issues 
of the culture war. He's a writer, he's a social commentator, he's a translator of classical poetry, and at the moment, he is a professor of English Renaissance and classical literature at Thomas More College. In fact, he got pushed out of his previous job when students and faculty expressed displeasure at some of his opinions on the cult of diversity. But I first began to read him, I think it was in Crisis Magazine. He's written in a wide range of publications. He's written in The Catholic Thing. He's written in First Things. He's written in the Claremont Review of Books and Public Discourse. And some readers of LifeSite News might remember that he's also written some columns uh, here at LifeSite News. But one of the things that I think defines Anthony Eslin as one of the greatest diagnosticians of what is currently affecting Western civilization is his books. I've got a bunch of them at home, and I cannot recommend them more highly. Life Under Compulsion, 10 Ways to Destroy the Humanity of Your Child is brilliant. Uh, 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child is also a must-read, especially if you want to introduce your children to the classics of English literature. His book, Real Music, A Guide to the Timeless Hymns of the Church, which comes with a CD, is also wonderful, but by far... Anthony Eslin's best book, in my opinion, is Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture, which was put out in 2017. This is, in my opinion, hands down the best analysis of what is going on in our culture. And it's also one of the most encouraging analyses because Anthony Eslin refuses to cede defeat to the barbarians at the gates. He refuses to give up and say, those who support the killing of preborn children, those who want to tear down the statues of our forefathers, those who want to redefine marriage and bring in every new gender ideology that happens to roll across the floor of the queer studies department, he says, absolutely not. Eslin's book is quite simply a must-read for anybody who wants to get a grasp of what is happening in the West and where to go from here, how we can get back what our forefathers left to us. He's also recently written a book that just came out called Nostalgia, Going Home in a Homeless World. And so to start off this podcast on the culture wars, on what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a social conservative in a society that's going mad, I want to start off with this discussion with Dr. Anthony Eslin. I was hoping to first talk a bit about uh, your book, Out of the Ashes. Okay. So in your book, Out of the Ashes, you essentially posit uh, that although culture is collapsing all around us uh, in the West, that North America is is essentially a shell of its former self, that we can begin to rebuild it. And, and it's a very optimistic book in some ways, um, especially yeah. when compared to books like Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option. There's been a lot of uh, Nostradamus, apocalyptic, futuristic books by traditionalist writers over the past couple of years. But yours was, I think, the most brutal in its analysis of the problem, but also uh, the most hopeful in indicating that there is something we can do to start putting this back together. Uh, Could you just kind of explain where that optimism comes from and what it looks like? Well... I don't know that I would characterize it as optimism, um, because uh, I'm temperamentally not a, a, an optimistic person. Right. Um, I think it comes from 
whatever you would whatever you would call optimism uh whatever it is that's in in that book there comes from two sources one is one is the the christian virtue of hope um is i i do not believe that god has abandoned the human race to its own stupid um and empty imaginations that uh uh there there will be raised among us saints and um uh out of this muddle uh something something good something glorious will will come i have no idea when i don't know uh that it matters to us to know when or even to be able to guess when um but the, the what, what related to that related to that is uh, um uh, my observation that the uh that the people who are actually having children and the people who care about culture in one way or another that is preserving or more more frequently recovering some good thing that we have forgotten about that we've lost um those people tend to be uh uh deeply religious people and this goes across the christian denominations um that they they're the ones who are having children um and they're the ones who are founding schools and now I I I, I turn to, from um, the virtue of hope to just opening my eyes and seeing what's going on right right in front of me. Um, if you would, if we'd had this conversation ten or twelve years ago, and uh, you said, "Well, name for me some some schools that are adopting some of what you recommend in Out of the Ashes," uh, I would have been at a loss. I'd have been. I might have been able to say, well, there's this over here, there's that over there. But now such schools are being founded um, by Catholics and by by uh, Protestants all over the place. Um, the so-called classical Christian schools. Every 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 few days I seem to hear of another one, or somebody writes to me um, saying, I am now a teacher of the fellow uh, yesterday from Australia sending me couple of copies of the novel that he's written is a retired professor from University of Brisbane and now he teaches at a classical Christian school in Australia and all these schools are relatively new um they're 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 at their inception they are multiplying uh their enrollments are increasing and um they're going to they're going to uh they're going to have their effect. But the other thing is, uh, uh, when when we're talking about the things that you can notice that are in front of your front of your nose, um, I, I notice that there are all these uh, treasures uh, in arts and letters. Let's say to confine ourselves to things that you would read or things that you would listen to or play on a musical instrument, um, and they're they're just there. Um, the left has abandoned them. The conservatives sometimes behave as if they never knew they existed in the first place. But they're there. And and they're all ours. They all belong to sane people before this, this dreadful age. Right. Um, they're there. It's, it's, like, it's like there's a huge, big pile of unused artillery. It's right there. Your opponents don't want to go near it. They slander it. They 
they've they've consigned it to damn damnation. But it's there. It's right there. And you have to think, well, eventually somebody is going to get smart enough to say, hey, uh, why don't we uh, use that artillery? Um, and I'm talking about all the uh, great works of literature and art and music that have characterized the, the Western heritage. Almost all of it is um, stuff that uh, um, our opponents would find appalling and either have to twist to their own purposes or have to condemn. Um, it's basically ours, and eventually we'll start to use it. Um, it's there. It's, it's the gun on the wall, and the gun is loaded. Somebody's going to pick that, that gun off the wall and, and uh, say, hey, you know what? Why do we have to be patsies all of this time? We've got Michelangelo. We've got Johann Sebastian Bach. We've got Augustin and Dostoevsky. Um, we've got uh, Titian and Tintoretto and Caravaggio and Rembrandt. What do they got? They got lousy church buildings. They got lousy music. They got lousy art. They got television. Television is lousy. Um, we got all this stuff. Eventually, it's going to uh, be put into employment, I, I have to think. Yeah, it's 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 interesting you say that. I was in I was in Russia in in, in 2018, and and that's sort of how they talk about the Christian heritage eventually winning is because they have Dostoevsky, they've got Tolstoy, and secularism is simply no match for for works of genius like that. And one of the things I wanted to to bring up about your book Out of the Ashes is this bit here about. Uh, the one thing the church has to do, nearly every denomination, at least those that have survived the uh, the the secular tidal wave, is struggling with how to deal with the sexual revolution and how pervasive uh, this revolution was. There are movements that have sprung up just to address the results of this revolution. For example, uh, the pro-life movement, uh, even when it tries to avoid specifically addressing pelvic issues, exists due to the fact that no revolution is bloodless, uh, that people said they wanted to, um, you know, make love, not war, but it turns out they were ready to do both, and that even though there was nothing they were willing to die for, there was something they were willing to kill for. And yeah. so you write about the sexual revolution, that it needs to be rejected, and I just want to read this paragraph to you, because it's one of my favorites, and get your take. Uh, you point out that liberal Christians in 1966 could proffer the poor excuse that the experiment was untried, that they did not know any better, that Jesus did not really condemn sins of the flesh, and that the times they were a-changing. Christians 50 years later do not have even that excuse. The experiment has been an unmitigated disaster. Those fences, they were levees, not fences. The churches took down the levees and erected signs in their place reading, Now, above all, be nice. The rain has come, the river has risen, it has broken down the few untended levees remaining and buried the pretty little signs under hundreds of feet of mud and water that once did productive work for mankind now spreads like a vast malarial marsh over what used to be fields and farms and villages, simmering and breeding vermin in the sun. Christians must repudiate the whole sexual revolution, all of it. No keepsakes, no exceptions, remember Lot's wife. Now that's powerful. Oh boy, <laughs> that's powerful for going. a number. Of, yeah, it's powerful for a number of reasons. I remember when I read that, I had to read it out loud to my wife because the number of biblical references in that single paragraph uh, that you have to be sort of biblically literate to recognize is is just staggering. But that paragraph 
sort of channels the prophetic rage a lot of us have when we're looking at this this garbage, when it comes to, to pornography, when it comes to giving your kids the technology to access pornography, when it comes to buckling on on issues of same-sex marriage and, and so on and so forth. The temptation is there. The pressure is immense. How can the church you know, win this encounter? How can we do exactly what you tell us we must in that paragraph? Well, uh, uh, there's two things. Um, one, is, uh, one is negative, one is positive. On the negative side, we, we can't give any ground on, on principles and on language. We can't do it, okay? Um, so, uh, no business talking about LGBTQ people. Um, there are only men and women, children, boys and girls. That's what there are, okay? Um, what, what sins people have fallen into they are not to be defined by those sins, and what temptations they have. They're not to be defined by their temptations. Um, we, we, we can't even buy the, the, the terminology of the opponents and the self-identification. Um, we can't say, for instance, that there are such things as gay Christians. There aren't. There are men and there are women. Okay? Um, we, we would use those, uh, those, uh, uh, those nouns or those adjectives only in a loose sense as we as if we might say well that man over there is a thief we don't mean that he is essentially a thief we mean that he he has stolen things and if he ceases to steal things we don't call him a thief anymore um if he has temptations to steal which he resists we might we might worry before we stop saying, you know, that, that guy over there is a bit of a thief. Um, but, but when we say he's a bit of a thief, we're saying this guy has stolen things in the past and he's inclined to steal now. Um, we're not saying anything about his, his person as made by God. We're not even saying anything about the real man that's underneath that sludge of sin. Um, we're, we're, we're talking about actions. Uh, otherwise, we should never use the terminology at all. There is no such thing as a transgender person. There are only boys and girls and men and women, and they may have mutilated themselves, but we can't give way on the language, period. Um, now, but the second thing is, and of course we have to preach, we have to preach the, uh, we have to preach without regard to whose feelings it's going to hurt, we have to preach that uh, all of these sexual sins are in fact sexual sins, and that they do grave harm the common good into the person who engages in them. We, we can't we can't be uh, nice about that. Cancer is not nice, and this stuff is cancer. But on the on the on the positive end, um, we really have to form the imaginations and the habits uh, of our young people. We can't just say, "Okay, all right, you guys, don't fall into that bad habit." That's not enough. Um, the bad habits are everywhere around them to uh, to entice them. Um, we've got to give them something else. So we can't say, for instance, um, to use, a, use as an analogy, uh, we don't want you watching this bad TV over here. Okay? Um, we ought to give them something good to do. Right? 
the the good will be so appealing and so habitual to them that that the bad they will see the bad as bad uh, and not just as morally bad but as kind of stupid and tawdry and dishonorable and disgusting um petty uh something that you know it's like eating mud why would you eat mud once you had tasted real food right and and we haven't done that we haven't done that so for instance we expect young people we expect young people to follow the moral law and uh you know to get married have children and so on well we give them no guidance in this um it used to be uh it used to be considered um as a matter of course that grown-ups would take the lead in bringing young people together boys and girls in a healthy way so as to give them practice for uh courtship and then to give them opportunities for real courtship when they were old enough and and to kind of nudge them into this because sometimes people are a little timid sometimes they're they're lazy um so that we could get the young people married right when we're not doing this we're we're not setting up situations where boys and girls can have fun innocent fun with each other precisely as members of their sex right for the members of the other sex we don't we're not doing that um and then uh you know we we throw them off to college and we we our hope is that when they go to college that they are not scorched by the by the fire and brimstone that's coming out of those colleges. We're, we're hoping that they survive the colleges. But while they're there, um, we, give them, we give them nothing. Um, a lot of them will fall then because, uh, because there's no counterweight. Where, where are the Christian churches uh, uh, sponsoring dances, for instance, for, for, for young people or... Um, and since young people are, are no longer know how to court or even how to date, they don't do it. They don't know how. They don't, wouldn't know how to begin. Um, where, where are the grown-ups, the responsible grown-ups, to, um, to, to, to show them how or to set up situations in which it's going to be, they're going to be relieved of pressure uh, so that the boy is not asking a girl will you go out with me on a date? And, and it's understood by both to be one step away from marriage. It's too much pressure. Um, but to relieve some of that pressure by making it um, a standard and ordinary part of the life of, of kids growing up, that they would, um, they would do things with members of the opposite sex, um, uh, with certain rules, certain guidelines, and sometimes under the general supervision of responsible adults. Where's all of that? Where's the church doing that? I don't see it. Um, got to be done though. Uh, you, you have to. If you're in a fight with with evil, you can't just fight evil with the refraining from evil, with refusing to engage in evil. You have to refuse to engage in the evil, but you got to fight it with something good. Um, then you'll win. Uh, other, otherwise, you you are just uh, you're you're just sitting ducks. You're saying, well, you know, if we keep ourselves holed up here. Um, the, the bullets won't reach us. It may be true, uh, but in the meantime, you're not winning anything. You're just, you're just huddling and, and savings. And then some people will say, what the heck, I'm tired of just sitting in this hole here. Um, people out there, or at least they, they pretend to be having fun. At least there's some action. Um, and that's how we lose 
a, a lot of young people. We don't we don't have something really glorious going on. We have nothing going on. Right. The other side has bad stuff going on, but at least they got something going on. It's it's sort of interesting when you look at at the sexual revolution, which you've written a lot about. Uh, I remember this is years ago already, but you wrote a very uh, powerful column for Crisis Magazine called uh, "What They Will Never Know," and you basically took our 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 pornified culture that knows so much about the practicalities of sexuality, but nothing about um, the the transcendence of love, and and you boiled it down. Uh, to an example of, of of most kids don't know anymore the thrill of what it is like to actually hold hands that feeling you get when yeah. you hold hands with a girl for the first time and and uh, er, uh, earlier I actually saw a headline it's it's even worse than what you wrote those years ago there's a new phenomenon in public high schools because pornography is is so prevalent right around the age of nine now grade six. And there's a, a new trend in high schools uh, called sex before kissing. The guys say, if you have sex with me, I'll kiss you. Because that's what the girls have to do to get the sort of thing that, you know, was once part of a naturally progressing relationship. Like in order to get the things that, you know, their parents had adorable little statues of in the garden and things like that. They have to first bow to the demands of this of this revolution that is that is eating its own. And it's interesting because everybody has what they were promised, but nobody's happy. If you look at the rock stars who promised, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll, uh, the, most of them, there's the 27 rule, right? They killed themselves or died of drug overdoses. And they said, you know, I have everything. I'm unhappy. Follow me. And millions did. Yeah. Um, and, and we, we now have, have the same thing. We have, the suicide rate is skyrocketing in the United States. You've got people blowing their brains out in front of widescreen televisions. We supposedly yep. have everything money can buy. If you're poor, you might have a small widescreen television, right? We've, we, yeah. we've had to redefine poverty. We have everything the American dream and the sexual revolution ever promised us, and we're killing ourselves in numbers that are unseen in, in American history. So my, I guess my question is, when when do we recognize that not only does the emperor have no clothes, but he obviously has herpes? Like, the, yeah. you know, the, the, the bill is in. Uh, you know, it's time to pay the piper. The report card on the last half century uh, is now filled out. We've gone from three common STDs to 25 separate categories of STDs. There is no standard by which... Uh, the sexual revolution can claim genuine progress, at least in terms of human flourishing and, and happiness. Even those left-wing academics who took over the universities, um, you know, they've had the universities for 50 years. And if you read the headlines, there are still places rife with transphobia, racism, homophobia. Um, you know, these places are worse than they were when they got them. So, you know, yeah. the one, you know, maybe they should give them back. But this is so obviously ready to collapse it so obviously has not worked what what moment what what does it take for us to recognize you know that this thing is over it's it hasn't worked we're unhappy we're miserable we're literally killing ourselves what does it take uh, uh yeah that's it's it's a great question um i i wonder sometimes uh the uh you know what? I, I asked a priest, a uh, friend of mine, about um, the apostasy of of priests who are somewhat older than I am. Right? So they would be, they would have been in seminary 
when all the madness was coming out for the first time in the in the 1960s and uh i said to him you know what what do you do with priests who have who have basically abandoned almost all of the faith who were in a state of apostasy um what and they're still priests they still act as priests because that's the job they were trained for they they don't know how to do anything else and they in, in, infest the churches we're, we're waiting for them to retire and leave finally um he said to me that that it requires a miracle of god because the grace of the priesthood are so great um that when you when you uh when you deny them or when you betray them you're really in a spiritual hole uh something comparable may be said about um about about uh everybody in this crazy world that we're in right now especially those who were the standard bearers for the sexual revolution they're still among us um they they had promised so much and delivered so little and staked their whole beings upon these promises that they're really in the grip of a kind of demonic cycle um it no amount of evidence is is persuasive to them um they they have doubled down on the same bad bad stuff right i mean even 10 years ago who who would have imagined that um cases would go to the supreme court uh in, involving whether a boy could be a girl or a girl could be a boy i mean it's crazy even 10 years ago people would have thought that was crazy um that we, we we're not dealing here with people for whom uh bringing forth evidence can have any effect once you've once you've accepted the revolution in in principle and acted upon it um it's it's got you in its talons as if it were a demon itself and um uh it would take a miracle of god to pry those individual persons from from that power um unfortunately uh i mean obviously we need need to do our best to minister to such people but right um they they really require that and that there, are, there are millions of such they really require a kind of exorcism um we we need to work with with reason and evidence we need to work on the people who haven't yet um uh succumbed to the principles of right. the revolution and so that that kind of that that's that's where I've been wondering actually if you look at the transgender thing people somebody asked me recently how far do you think that this thing can go and and my response was that this the the transgender wave is going to be one of two things it's going to it's going to either signify the complete and total victory of the LGBT activists and the and the relativists the complete um domination of of our culture in terms of we can live how we want even nature is now legally by law subject to our delusions our whims what we want to do or this is where the revolution breaks apart because there are a lot of liberals there are a lot of uh, old guard feminists there are a lot of people that were totally on board with Joe marrying Bob who just cannot get on board with the idea that Bob can become Susan or that Joe can become pregnant, or that Sally has a penis. Uh, 
I wonder if if that we are at the point now where the common ordinary person has simply been asked to believe too much. I worked on construction sites. I've worked on fencing crews with landscaping crews. A lot of those guys uh, did not hold a single Christian view. But if you told them that there was such a thing as, and I'm 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 quoting here, there's such a thing as as a girl dick, they would have laughed right in your face because they yep. weren't educated enough to believe something that stupid. And so I wonder if if maybe uh, the the transgender ideology will will essentially tell us whether or not we're finished or whether or not that this is this is where it all breaks. This is the gates of Vienna. Yeah. I I would hold out no hope from the uh, old guard liberals and the feminists, unfortunately, um, with few exceptions. Uh, they will, and they always, they always have disappointed us. Um, we, we always believed, for instance, that uh, some of the old guard feminists would come around on abortion because they would they would see the uh, the craziness there and the right. uh, deep hatred of the woman's body that uh, abortion expresses. But they won't. They won't. Um, they uh, they're not going to be allies. I I hate to say it, but they but they're not going to be. It's not going to happen. Um, I uh, in an analogous way. I I I suppose I I, I hold out no hope from from female politicians who call themselves conservative, um, they will back down. They will back down every single time. Um, the, the, the feminism itself is, is a disease that um, um, ruins their immune system and makes them easy prey to attack. And they'll, they'll have a bad conscience about it for, you know, uh, an anthropological minute or two, but then they'll get on board. They'll get on board for one reason or another. Um, the 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 people in in the construction crews, the men, uh, you know, the men have not been deceived. Most men have not been deceived, but it doesn't it it, it doesn't matter because they won't act on their not being deceived. They'll go along with Eve. Adam will go along with Eve. Adam, Adam has largely uh, uh, committed the sin of Adam that's, that Adam does commit all through human history. Um, fact is that, that men typically don't want the responsibility of leadership. Um, so, you know, when Eve insists, then Adam will go along with it, um, unfortunately. I mean, he'll go along with it even though he knows it's stupid, and even though he... Uh, wouldn't be able to look another man in the eye and say that he actually believes it. You know, he, well, he'll, um, we, it's, it's pretty bleak. We, we have to give, um, we have to give people, young people, especially, um, a full bodied view of what it means to be male and what it means to be female. Um, right now that's given to them by nobody. We have to have we have to be raising young people who take joy in the fact that they are male or that they are female, um, who delight in it because it is a delightful thing, and then who who learn also to delight in the other sex being what it is. We will be accused left and right of engaging in stereotypes. Oh, that's just nonsense. Go go to whatever culture you name. 
you will find men behaving in the way that w- in ways that would be immediately recognizable uh, as as masculine. You, you, you take a time machine, go back three thousand years, plunk yourself down on any part of the world, and you it, it, everything might be unfamiliar to you, but men and women will not be unfamiliar to you. Well, ironically, right? the the, tran- the transgender movement has brought the stereotypes back. The feminists said that. You know, um, girls don't need to wear dresses or skirts. Men and women are essentially the same. And now you've got the transgender activists saying, like, yeah, well, this four-year-old boy is clearly a girl. And then we say, why? They're like, well, he likes dresses and dolls. Um, yeah. So, like, watching transgenderism essentially obliterate previous progressive movements is rather like watching the snake choke on its own tail. Because now what we end up having is is now those stereotypes are not only uh, actually relevant, but they are so true they can justify putting kids on you know, chemical hormones and right. and sort of scheduling them for double mastectomies and castrations and things like that. Right, right. But none of it will matter because people have ceased to reason. Um, I mean, if if people if people were reasoning, would we now be having women uh, on the front lines of, of military campaigns in the infantry? Um, people who are, people who are killing babies in the womb and putting women in the infantry, uh, are not people who can be appealed to. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, I don't mean young people who yet have their imaginations and their reason to be formed. I mean everybody else. Um, that You can't appeal to them in rational ways. It, you might as well be appealing to uh, a person in psychosis. You know? so it doesn't is- matter. And 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 almost the more irrational and crazy it is, the more appealing it is. That's why I say they 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 need an exorcism um, more than they need anything else. It's 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 ridiculous. Uh, you know what? But the funny thing is that um, we now know uh, people who um, anthropologists and uh, psych, psychologists who study these things are are now quite aware that. Most stereotypes are uh, constant. Uh, with regard to men and women, they are constant across cultures. They are very clear, and they are very reliable too. Um, they're not going away. There, there are there, there are people who have to know this in order to keep their jobs. Well, um, this those is, are advertisers. This, this is how they, right? they. It was why that's why they tried to kill Jordan Peterson's career, right? Is because he was yeah. making very anodyne statements about the differences between males and females, and as a result, they went after him. But his common sense was recognized. A lot of what he says, in in my humble opinion, isn't particularly profound for those of us who you know were brought up with with the Bible and with the tenets of Christianity. But what he said is. His common sense is so radical to so many people that he's gotten rich and famous saying saying things that are uh, are sort of eminently practical and logical and real. Right, right, and more power to him. Um, I, I, I mentioned as a side note that in a documentary uh, aired on the CBC, I, when it panned past his bookshelf, I recognized that Jordan Peterson actually has a copy of your book out of the ashes on his shelf, and I've I've wanted to know what he thought of it ever since I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, uh, someone sent that to me. Um, I, I think I think that he's a very bright man, and he's a broadly read man. Um, he's uh, in some ways he's kind of what you would expect a college professor to be. 
if you were if you went back in a, a, a time machine to 1950 or 1960, you would expect a college professor to be rather like him. Right. Um, and uh, now he sticks out because he actually thinks, he actually reads, and he doesn't buy garbage that's peddled essentially from advertisers and from people. Um, I, I mean, political advertisers and people who uh, go along with the fads. Um, I, I'm I'm amazed sometimes at the inability of uh, female academics to see themselves for what they are. By comparison with a guy like Jordan Peterson, it, it's 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 as if you it's as if you were embarrassing yourself on a stage. But you were, you had no self awareness at all, and no terms of comparison. That was Nero. You don't wasn't even it? know how 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 dumb you look, um, and and it's not just let's say for two minutes on a stage in Peoria. Um, this stuff is 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 being recorded, and it'll be available for centuries for people to look at and see how stupid um, we were right now at this time. And they, they're not afraid of that. I'm, I'm amazed by that fact. Yeah, that brings me directly to, to your most recent book, which is called uh, Nostalgia, Coming Home in a Homeless World. And the one sentence uh, that, that describes your book that you, that you delineate quite carefully is probably, there's a lot to unpack there, but this, just this one sentence, America's political elite has a stake in the destruction of cultural memory. That statement yeah. encapsulates, I think, uh, most of your writing career, um, um, your how to destroy the humanity of your child, uh, how to destroy uh, the creativity of your child, um, then your book called Real Music, Out of the Ashes. Almost all of your books sort of focus on this theme. Uh, how would you unpack that sentence for those who, who don't understand what you mean by the political elite and what you mean by the destruction of cultural memory? Okay, well, uh, the political elites now, they are, it's, a, it's a vast parasite, basically, right? I mean, it, how, how much do, does government at all levels cost us or soak up from us? Um, a, third, a third of uh, our income, more than a third, in my case, near 50%. And for what? What do we get from it? Um, we get largely cycles of dependence and layer upon layer of bureaucracy. Um, it, it, it's, it, there, there is no incentive built in, into government at all levels to actually solve any problem. Um, you, uh, um, you want people to be as dependent as possible upon the state so that the state can grow, not just in size, but in its in its uh, uh, in its interests and in its having a finger in in every pie, right? Now, to make people to make people dependent upon the state and things that serve the state, and I include always in this the uh, the mass phenomena, so mass education, mass media, mass entertainment, right? Mass entertainment, mass education, mass politics. Um, you you want them to be dependent upon those things, uh, and they won't be dependent upon those things if they have a cultural memory, right? Um, so, for instance, you're you're not going to be dependent upon mass entertainment uh, 
for for your music, to take one example, if you can actually play a musical instrument and, uh, well, you know a little bit about music, you can, you know, you can enjoy the music of of Bach or, you know, the folk music of Stephen Foster, um, it, to the extent that you have a cultural memory with regard to music, to that same extent, you you will have escaped the, the clause of the mass music industry. Um, and we can just apply that wisdom all the way across the board. Um, to, to the extent that you are a reader, to that same extent, you will have escaped the clause of, of mass entertainment and mass politics. If you, to the extent that you actually read history, that you know something about what actually happened in your own country not that long ago, uh, to the same extent, you will be um, uh, impervious to stupid, silly political appeals. Um, political movements will come and go, and they'll wash over you without having this the dreadful effect. I mean, everybody's crazy. Everybody's crazy about politics. Um, and and uh, it, 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 the, the, the state as such has no interest in having citizens that are not easily manipulated. Um, so the, our government schools don't want young people to be broadly cultured, because if they are, they'll be impervious to the political lessons that those same schools are there to peddle. Um, now, if you've got kids reading Dostoevsky, they're going to be a lot less likely to buy the stupid stuff that the school is is actually now in existence to preach um, right. and uh, so I mean it, it, in, in a certain sense this gives the same people and Christians great opportunity um, all the other institutions have abandoned these things um, but we don't have to abandon them right um, we can we can pick them up again, yeah, uh, and be real human beings again, and uh, that would be just the start of of the pushback, the battle against the dehumanizing influences of um, of the mass phenomena. And I'm not, I'm not, no means the first person to talk about this. Gabriel Marcel was talking about this in the 40s, and Romano Guardini was this, worrying about what's happening to the human soul because of mass phenomena. That's it's seventy five years old now, um, but uh, it's, it's still true. It's true in spades. Um, yeah. Our schools are far worse than they were seventy five years ago. Um, far more intrusive, far more suspicious of culture in the local sense, such as family and family traditions, and. Uh, far more suspicious of the uh, cultural inheritance of the West. That's why they don't want to teach it. They don't want to teach Milton. You know? Well, you, you have to, you you have to teach book. about Genesis. Yeah. Take Milton seriously? They don't want to do that. <laughs> well, you wrote a book on nostalgia in a time when history has been largely replaced by social studies, and this is really applicable just because people largely don't even know what they're nostalgic for. They don't know who the great history 
Like they don't know the great men and women of the past because as Chesterton once said, progressives are always afraid not of the vices of the past, but of the virtues, which is why they have to discredit the past. And what you're seeing now is our previous generation was either entirely racist, entirely homophobic. Now it's now it's transphobic, which was everybody, you know, up to to an hour or two ago. Uh, you know, you know the famous statement: "In the future, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes." Uh, I like to turn that around and say, "In the like in the future, in 15 minutes, everybody who was previously will have will become evil because these yeah. new ideologies are accumulating at such a rapid." Uh, uh, such a rapid clip that people who accepted the first four or five things, you know, might get hung up on on the next one, and then they they join the ranks of of those who have been thoroughly discredited by by the the current social experiment. How do you start to bring about? How do you point that nostalgia in the right direction and define it for people? Uh, because people need to know what they're nostalgic for, and that's largely what you point to in your book. Right. Two things. Um... One is what every human being needs, and that is home. Um, we are now a, we're, we're now a homeless people. Um, we we have houses, most of us. Um, we we have roofs over our heads, so we get to sleep, you know, and the rain doesn't drip on our uh, on our heads, right? Uh, but um, very little sense of place, very very little sense of belonging anywhere. But human beings, human beings really need that. Um, when they don't have that, they seek it. They seek it out with very bad substitutes. So now, um, for instance, a replacement home would be a political party. Well, yeah, I mean, that lot of good that'll do you when you're sick and dying to think, oh well, yeah, I I belong to this political party. Nobody cares um, when when the real difficult things in life come up when. When you're about to lose everything, to think, well, you know, I, I belong to a political party. I took part in a lot of political rallies, but big deal. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's empty. So people are seeking. They're seeking in the first instance a real home here uh, on this earth, and they don't have it. And they 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 seek substitutes, and the substitutes are cruelly disappointing. The other thing is, we get. We, we learn this from Scripture and from uh, the whole of Christian tradition. They're seeking a home that is not here. Um, that that, that they're, they're seeking an eternal home. They're on a journey. And in my book, I put these two things together. There's the, the, the people who are most rooted in place and time and culture and cultural memory, family and the history of the place where they were born, um, those people are more, not less, but more likely also to be on a pilgrimage um, in this life, through this life, towards an eternal home. The people who are uh, spiritually homeless, um, who have houses but not homes, they are less likely also to be seeking um the eternal home. They're less likely to be on pilgrimage, but they're very active in a frenzied and uh, ultimately ineffectual and frustrating way. Um, they thrash about um, seeking uh, seeking on this earth in, let's say, political movements, a home that does not provide 
the goods that home provides even on this earth. And they have uh, replaced the eternal home um, to, to which we are moving, for which we are on pilgrimage, with, uh, I don't know what, some hazy, progressive vision of everything being wonderful in the future, though the details of that future they never trouble to tell us, um, because they don't half believe that it's going to be wonderful either, right? So, so you have no home now, but you believe in a vague way in the future, but even the future is is frightening. Um, that's why half of the stuff that young people read now is futuristic dystopias, you know? I mean, uh, the, the people who, who have no aim towards heaven, they themselves don't believe that the future is going to be good. But that's all they have. Um, so my book is uh, about nostalgia, not just for going home in the sense of recovering uh, what we've lost from the past, but um, returning to the pilgrimage, which the progressives have abandoned. I call them stick-in-the-mud progressives. So before, because we, we want people to actually to, to buy the book and read it all for themselves, but could you give our listeners uh, one big practical thing that they can do that, that you urged in your book that so that, that everybody can kind of get started? Because, again, one of the reasons I, I appreciated uh, your last three books is that you don't just give a devastating analysis of what the culture is like, although, as that paragraph I read earlier indicated, you're quite capable of, of, of sounding uh, quite Old Testament when you decide to, but because you actually do give things, they give things to do. You actually give advice. You you give things we can all do to start building strong families, you know, strong communities, um, and, and actually do something that allows us to feel like if we start with ourselves and start with our own families, the culture can be rebuilt because because families are the building blocks upon which a culture uh, has been built. And as as you pointed out earlier. Um, it's it's not it's not the progressives who are having kids. They're too worried about climate change. So what's the yep. uh, what's what what are what are a practical thing or two we can leave our listeners with before they go out and buy your book? Okay, um, one, you're you're young. Get married already. What are you waiting for? Uh, you you're waiting for <laughs> everything to be economically perfect. Your grandparents didn't wait for that. Get married already. Okay, um, get married, have kids, and don't worry about. Um, whether you uh, uh, are behaving in ways that your grandparents and great-grandparents would have recognized as m- masculine and feminine. Th- that's just nature. Go with it. Don't let anybody tell you that there's something wrong with the wife behaving as a wife and husband as a husband and mothers and fathers, etc. Just do it already. Uh, second, if you have your kids in school, why? Um, what, what, what for? Those kids are being fed poison constantly. Don't say to me, well, you know, it's poison isn't all of what they're getting there. I don't care. Um, you, you have a, a dinner of filet mignon and, and, and rat poison. You don't say, well, you know, it's only 20% rat poison. 20% rat poison will kill you. doesn't matter what the rest of it is. Get your kids out of there. Um, do it yesterday, okay? Long overdue. You can't teach them at home. That's that's nonsense. Teach them at home. What do you have? What do you have your jobs for if not to raise your 
your children. And if your work is not benefiting your family, what the heck is it for? Get those kids out of there. Teach them at home if you have to. Um, teach them at home. Put book, good books in front of them. Good books have never been cheaper. And if you are not reading good books, why are you not? Um, develop the reading habit. If, if perhaps you don't like to read, okay, get yourself outside. The natural world is our ally. Do things outside. Learn, learn to do things with your hands. Plant, plant your backyard. Raise your own vegetables. Uh, do things. And teach your kids how to do. See that boy over there? Maybe he doesn't like football. That's okay. His, maybe his nervous system is not built for that kind of play. Ah, but put a saw in his hands and, and teach him how to work with wood. Put an axe in his hands. Um, go, go hiking with a kid. Do, get them out in the natural world made by God. Um, you, you got lousy music in your churches. Well, why do you have to have lousy music in your churches? Learn what real hymns are. Learn what folk songs are. This is not hard to do. You don't have to even play an instrument to learn how to do this. All you need is your voice. Um, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from actually uh, uh, having some of what we would generally call folk culture? Is something stopping Is there a law against it? There's no law against it, as far as I know, right now. Um, the, the, these things are readily available. If you're not getting yourself into church, why are you not getting into church? Do it already, okay? Um, we've abandoned most of our prayers uh, in, in, in the liturgical churches. People hardly, hardly know more than one or two prayers to pray. Well, um, we have these things called books. Open one. Learn some prayers. Do that. What's stopping you? What's stopping you but your own bad habits? Um, do things. Have, have fun as a family. You worried about you having too many kids? I've never met anybody in a big family who says to me, gee, I, I, I came from a big family. It was okay, but I wish there were fewer kids. Nobody. <laughs> I never meet anybody who says that. Um, you know, you don't have to solve the problems of the world um, to do these things. They're within your power. They're within your reach. They don't cost a lot of money. The mass stuff might cost a lot of money. Um, this stuff, it's, when it's, 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 it's in everybody's capability. Just get up, start. You don't have to do everything. Do something. See that, 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 that uh, sewer has backed up over there, and um, it's spilling out into the road. Get your shovel and start. Do something. That, that's, that's my message here. Well, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. Well, you're most welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my discussion with Dr. Anthony Eslin, the author of books like Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture, and his most recent book, Nostalgia, Going Home in a Homeless World. I hope you enjoyed this discussion, and I hope you head over to LifeSightNews.com to check out more Culture War news to keep up to date on what is going on and what you can do about it. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next week.